chapter four part one of eve of the revolution by carl becker this librivox recording is in the public domain defining the issue a peppercorn in acknowledgment of the right is of more value than millions without it george grenville a perpetual jealousy respecting liberty is absolutely requisite in all free states john dickinson good americans everywhere celebrated the repeal of the stamp act with much festivity and joyful noises in the streets and with genteel entertainments in taverns where innumerable toasts were drunk to liberty and to its english defenders before his house on beacon hill mr john hancock on occasion a generous man erected a platform and placed there a pipe of madeira which was broached for all comers at colonel ingersoll's where twenty-eight gentlemen attended to take dinner fifteen toasts were drunk and very loyal they were and suited to the occasion upon which occasion we are told mr hancock again treated every person with cheerfulness throughout the land men with literary gifts or instincts delivered themselves of vigorous free verse founded upon the antithesis of freedom and tyranny and enforcing the universal truth that in the unequal war oppressors fall the hate contempt and endless curse of all in new york on the occasion of the king's birthday an ox was roasted whole in the fields and twenty kegs of beer were opened for a great dinner at the king's arms and afterwards through the generosity of the assembly of that province there was erected on the bowling green a mounted statue made of lead but without present intention of being turned into bullets representing his majesty king george the third of ever-glorious memory the restorer of liberty the joyful americans could not know how little king george aspired to be thought the restorer of liberty in reality he was extremely sulky in his silent stubborn way over the repeal of the stamp act and vexed most particularly at the part which he himself had been forced to play in it the idea of a patriot king conceived by lord bolingbroke one-time jacobite exile and instilled into the mind of the young hanoverian monarch by an ambitious mother had little to do with liberty either british or colonial but had much to do with authority the patriot king was to be a king indeed seeking advice of all virtuous men of whatever connections without being bound by any man or faction of men it was not to restore liberty nor yet to destroy it but to destroy factions that the king was ambitious and for this purpose he desired a ministry that would do his bidding without too much question if mr grenville did not satisfy his majesty it was not on account of the stamp act in respect to which the king was wholly of mr grenville's opinion that it was a just law and ought to be enforced in july seventeen sixty five when mr grenville was dismissed there had indeed as yet been no open resistance in america and if the king had been somewhat annoyed by the high talk of his loyal subjects in virginia he had been annoyed much more by mr grenville who was disposed in spite of his outward air of humility 
and solemn protestations of respect to be very firm with his majesty in the matter of ministerial prerogative reading him from time to time carefully prepared pedantic little curtain lectures on the customs of the constitution and the duties of kings under particular circumstances unable to endure mr grenville longer the king turned to mr pitt this statesman although extremely domineering in the house was much subdued in the presence of his sovereign and along with many defects had one great virtue in his majesty's eyes which was that he shared the king's desire to destroy the factions the king was accordingly ready to receive the great commoner even though he insisted on bringing the constitution and earl temple into the bargain with him to st james's palace but when it appeared that earl temple was opposed to the repeal of the stamp act mr pitt declined after all to come to st james's on any terms even with his beloved constitution whereupon the harassed young king rather than submit again to mr grenville's lectures surrendered himself temporarily to the old line whigs under the lead of the marquis of rockingham in all the negotiations which ended in this unpromising arrangement of the king's business the stamp act had apparently not been once mentioned except that mr grenville upon retiring had ventured to say to his majesty as a kind of abbreviated parting homily that if any man ventured to defeat the regulations laid down for the colonies by a slackness in the execution he mr grenville should look upon him as a criminal and the betrayer of his country the marquis of rockingham and his friends had no intention of betraying their country they had perhaps when they were thus accidentally lifted to power no very definite intentions of any sort respecting the stamp act as most alarming reports began to come in from america his majesty's opposition backed by the landed interest and led by mr grenville and the duke of bedford knew its mind much sooner than ministers knew theirs america was in open rebellion they said and so far from doing anything about it ministers were not even prepared four months after disturbances began to lay necessary information before the house under pressure of such talk the marquis of rockingham had to make up his mind it would be odd and contrary to well-established precedent for ministers to adopt a policy already outlined by opposition and in view of the facts that good whig tradition even if somewhat obscured in latter days committed them to some kind of liberalism that the city and the mercantile interests thought mr grenville's measures disastrous to trade and that they were much in need of mr pitt's eloquence to carry them through ministers at last in january seventeen sixty six declared for the repeal now that it was a question of repealing mr grenville's measures serious attention was given to them and honourable members in the notable debate of seventeen sixty six learned much about america and the rights of englishmen which they had not known before lord mansfield the most eminent legal authority in england argued that the stamp act was clearly within the power of parliament while lord camden whose opinion was by no means to be despised staked his reputation that the law was unconstitutional mr grenville in his precise way laid it down as axiomatic that since great britain protects america 
america is therefore bound to yield obedience if not he desired to know when americans were emancipated whereupon mr pitt springing up desired to know when they were made slaves the great commoner rejoiced that america had resisted and expressed the belief that three millions of people so dead to all the feelings of liberty as voluntarily to submit to be made slaves would be very fit instruments to make slaves of all englishmen honourable members were more disposed to listen to mr pitt than to vote with him and were doubtless less influenced by his hot eloquence than by the representations of english merchants to the effect that trade was being ruined by mr grenville's measures sir george saville honourable member for yorkshire spoke the practical mind of business men when he wrote to lord rockingham our trade is hurt what the devil have you been doing for our part we don't pretend to understand your politics and american matters but our trade is hurt pray remedy it and a plague of you if you won't this was not so eloquent as mr pitt's speech but still very eloquent in its way and more easily followed than mr pitt's theory that taxation is no part of the governing or legislative power constitutional arguments evenly balanced pro and con were not certain to change many minds while such brief statements as that of sir george saville although clearly revealing the opinion of that gentleman did little to enlighten the house on the merits of the question that members might have every opportunity to inform themselves about america the ministers thought it worth while to have benjamin franklin of philadelphia printer and friend of the human race brought before the bar of the house to make such statements of fact or opinion as might be desired of him the examination was a long one the questions very much to the point the replies very ready and often more to the point than the questions with much exact information the provincial printer maintained that the colonists having taxed themselves heavily in support of the last war were not well able to pay more taxes and that even if they were abundantly able the sugar duties and the stamp tax were improper measures the stamps in remote districts would frequently require more in postage to obtain than the value of the tax the sugar duties had already greatly diminished the volume of colonial trade while both the duties and the tax having to be paid in silver were draining america of its specie and thus making it impossible for merchants to import from england to the same extent as formerly it was well known that at the moment americans were indebted to english merchants to the amount of several million pounds sterling which they were indeed willing as english merchants themselves said but unable to pay necessarily therefore americans were beginning to manufacture their own cloth which they could very well do before their old clothes were worn out they would have new ones of their own making against the stamp act honourable members were reminded there was a special objection to be urged it was thought with good reason to be unconstitutional which would make its application difficult if not impossible troops might no doubt be sent to enforce it but troops would find no enemy to contend with no men in arms they would find no rebellion in america although they might indeed create one pressed by mr townsend to say whether the colonies might not on the ground of magna carta as well deny the validity of external as internal taxes the doctor was not ready to commit himself on that point it was true many arguments had lately been used in england to show americans that if parliament has no right to tax them internally 
it has none to tax them externally or to make any other law to bind them in reply to which he could only say that at present they do not reason so but in time they may possibly be convinced by these arguments whether the parliament was truly enlightened and resolved by statistical information and lofty constitutional argument is not certainly known but it is known that the king whose steady mind did not readily change was still opposed to the repeal a fact supposed to be not without influence in unsettling the opinions of some honourable members lord mansfield had discreetly advised his majesty that although it was contrary to the spirit of the constitution to endeavour by his majesty's name to carry questions in parliament yet where the lawful rights of the king and parliament were to be asserted and maintained he thought the making his majesty's opinion in support of those rights to be known was very fit and becoming the distinction was subtle but perhaps not too subtle for a great lawyer it was apparently not too subtle for a patriot king since certain noble lords who could be counted on to know the king's wishes conveyed information to the proper persons that those who found it against their conscience to vote for the repeal would not for that reason be received coldly at st james's palace in order to preserve the constitution as well as to settle the question of the repeal on its merits lord rockingham and the earl of shelburne obtained an interview with the king at which they pointed out to him the manifest irregularity of such a procedure and in addition expressed their conviction that on account of the high excitement in the city failure to repeal the stamp act would be attended with very serious consequences whether to preserve the constitution or to allow the repeal to be determined on its merits or for some other reason the king at last gave in writing his consent to the minister's measure on february twenty two by a vote of two hundred and seventy five to one hundred and sixty seven mr conway was given leave to bring in the bill for a total repeal of the stamp act the bill was accordingly brought in passed by both houses and on march eighteenth assented to by the king in the colonies the repeal was thought to be a victory for true principles of government at least a tacit admission by the mother country that the american interpretation of the constitution was the correct one no englishman denied that the repeal was an american victory and there were some like pitt and camden who preferred the constitutional theories of daniel delany to those of george grenville but most englishmen who took the trouble to have any views on such recondite matters having in general a poor opinion of provincial logic easily dismissed the whole matter with the convincing phrase of charles townsend that the distinction between internal and external taxes was perfect nonsense the average briton taking it for granted that all the subtle legal aspects of the question had been thoroughly gone into by lord mansfield was content to read mr Soame jennens a writer of verse and member of the board of trade who in a leisure hour had recently turned his versatile mind to the consideration of colonial rights with the happiest results in twenty-three very small pages he had disposed of the objections to the taxation of our american colonies in a manner highly satisfactory to himself and doubtless also to the average reading briton who understood constitutional questions best when they were briefly considered and when they were humorously expounded in pamphlets that could be had for sixpence having a logical mind mr jennens easily perceived that taxes could be objected to on two grounds the ground of right and the ground of expediency 
in his opinion the right of parliament to lay taxes on america and the expediency of doing so at the present moment were propositions so clear that any man in order not to bring his intelligence in question needed to apologize for undertaking to defend them mr jennings wished it known that he was not the man to carry owls to athens and that he would never have thought it necessary to prove either the right or the expediency of taxing our american colonies had not many arguments been lately flung out which with insolence equal to their absurdity deny them both with this conciliatory preliminary disclaimer of any lack of intelligence on his own part mr jennings proceeded to point out in his most happy vein how unsubstantial american reasoning really appeared when brushing aside befogging irrelevancies he once got to the heart of the question the heart of the question was the proposition that there should be no taxation without representation upon which principle it was necessary to observe only that many individuals in england such as copyholders and leaseholders and many communities such as manchester and birmingham were taxed in parliament without being represented there if americans quoted you locke sidney selden and many other great names to prove that every englishman is still represented in parliament he would only ask why since englishmen are all represented in parliament are not all americans represented in exactly the same way either manchester is not represented or massachusetts is are americans not british subjects are they not englishmen or are they only englishmen when they solicit protection but not englishmen when taxes are required to enable this country to protect them americans said they had assemblies of their own to tax them which was a privilege granted them by charter without which that liberty which every englishman has a right to is torn from them they are all slaves and all is lost colonial charters were however undoubtedly no more than those of all corporations which empowered them to make by-laws as for liberty the word had so many meanings having within a few years been used as a synonymous term for blasphemy bawdy treason libel strong beer and cider that mr jennings could not presume to say what it meant against the expediency of the taxes mr jennings found that two objections had been raised that the time was improper and the manner wrong as to the manner the colonies themselves had in a way prescribed it since they had not been able at the request of ministers to suggest any other the time mr jennings thought most propitious a point upon which he grew warm and almost serious can any time be more proper to require some assistance from our from our colonies to preserve to themselves their present safety than when this country is almost undone by procuring it can any time be more proper to impose some tax upon their trade than when they are enabled to rival us in their manufactures by the encouragement and protection which we have given them can any time be more proper to oblige them to settle handsome incomes on their governors than when we find them unable to procure a subsistence on any other terms than those of breaking all their instructions and betraying the rights of their sovereign can there be a more proper time to force them to maintain an army at their expense than when that army is necessary for their own protection and we are utterly unable to support it lastly can there be a more proper time for this mother country to leave off 
feeding out of her own vitals these children whom she has nursed up than when they are arrived at such strength and maturity as to be well able to provide for themselves and ought rather with filial duty to give some assistance to her distresses americans after all were not the only ones who might claim to have a grievance it was upon a lighter note not to end in anticlimax that mr jennings concluded his able pamphlet he had heard it hinted that allowing the colonies representation in parliament would be a simple plan for making taxes legal the impracticability of this plan he would not go into since the plan itself had nowhere been seriously pressed but he would upon that head offer the following consideration i have lately seen so many specimens of the great powers of speech of which these american gentlemen are possessed that i should be much afraid that the sudden importation of so much eloquence at once would greatly endanger the safety of the government of this country if we can avail ourselves of these taxes on no other condition i shall never look upon it as a measure of frugality being perfectly satisfied that in the end it will be much cheaper for us to pay their army than their orators mr jennings's pamphlet which could be had for sixpence was widely read with much appreciation for its capital wit and extraordinary common sense more widely read in england than mr james otis's rights of the british colonies asserted and proved or daniel delaney's considerations on the propriety of imposing taxes on the british colonies and it therefore did much more than these able pamphlets to clarify english opinion on the rights of parliament and the expediency of taxing america no one could deny that government had yielded in the face of noisy clamour and forcible resistance to yield under the circumstances may have been wise or not but government had not yielded on any ground of right but had on the contrary most expressly affirmed in the declaratory act that the king's majesty by and with the advice of the lords spiritual and temporal and commons of great britain in parliament assembled had hath and of right ought to have full power and authority to make such laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and people of america subjects of the crown of great britain in all cases whatsoever government had not even denied the expediency of taxing america the total repeal of the stamp act and the modification of the sugar act having been carried on a consideration of the inexpediency of these particular taxes only taxes not open to the same objection might in future be found and doubtless must be found inasmuch as the troops were still retained in america and the quartering act continued in force there for new taxes however it would doubtless be necessary to await the formation of a new ministry the formation of a new ministry was not an unusual occurrence in the early years of king george the third no one supposed that lord rockingham could hold on many months and as early as july seventeen sixty six all london knew that mr pitt had been sent for the coming and going of great men in times of ministerial crisis was always a matter of interest but the formation of that ministry of all the factions which the patriot king had long desired was something out of the ordinary the point of greatest speculation being how many irreconcilables mr pitt the earl of chatham he was now could manage to get seated about a single table from the point of view of irreconcilability no one was more eligible than mr charles townsend at that moment paymaster of the forces a kind of enfant terrible of english politics of whom horace walpole could say 
with every likelihood of being believed that his speech of last friday made while half drunk was all wit and indiscretion nobody but he could have made it nobody but he would have made it if he could he beat lord chatham in language burke in metaphors grenville in presumption rigby in impudence himself in folly and everybody in good humour this gentleman much to his astonishment one day received the following note from lord chatham sir you are too great a magnitude not to be in a responsible place i intend to propose you for chancellor of the exchequer and must desire to have your answer by nine o'clock to-night mr townsend was dismayed as well as astonished his dismay arising from the fact that the office of chancellor of the exchequer was worth but two thousand seven hundred pounds which was precisely four thousand three hundred pounds less than he was then receiving as paymaster of the forces to be a great magnitude on small pay had its disadvantages and mr townsend after remaining home all day in great distress of mind begged mr pitt to be allowed to retain the office of paymaster which was no sooner granted than he changed his mind and begged mr pitt to be allowed to accept the exchequer place which mr pitt at first refused and was only persuaded to grant finally upon the intercession of the duke of grafton the day following mr townsend accordingly informed the king that he had decided in view of the urgent representations of the earl of chatham to accept the office of chancellor of the exchequer in his majesty's new ministry no one supposed least of all himself that this delightful man would have any influence in formulating the policies of the chatham ministry lord chatham's policies were likely to be his own and in the present case so far as america was concerned they were not such as could be readily associated with mr townsend's views so far as those views were known or were not inconsistent for dealing with america the earl of shelburne because of his sympathetic understanding of colonial matters had been brought into the ministry to formulate a comprehensive and conciliatory plan as for the revenue always the least part of lord chatham's difficulties as it was the chief of mr grenville's it was thought that the possessions of the east india company if taken over by the government would bring into the treasury sums quite sufficient to pay the debt as well as to relieve the people in england and america at least of those heavy taxes which mr grenville and his party had thought necessarily involved in the extension of empire it was a curious chapter of accidents that brought all these well-laid plans to naught scarcely was the ministry formed when the earl of chatham incapacitated by the gout retired into a seclusion that soon became impenetrable and even before this resplendent orb was entirely set and while the western horizon was in a blaze with his descending glory on the opposite quarter of the heavens arose another luminary and for his hour became lord of the ascendant this luminary was mr charles townsend mr townsend was the delight and ornament of the house as edmund burke said never was a man in any country of more pointed and finished wit or where his passions were not concerned of a more refined exquisite and penetrating judgment never a man to excel him in luminous explanation and display of his subject nor ever one less tedious or better able to conform himself exactly to the temper of the house which he seemed to guide because he was always sure to follow it in seventeen sixty five mr townsend had voted for the stamp act but in seventeen sixty six when the stamp act began to be no favourite he voted for the repeal and would have spoken for it too if an illness had not prevented him and now in seventeen sixty seven mr townsend was chancellor of the exchequer and as such responsible for the revenue a man without any of that temperamental obstinacy which persists in opinions once formed 
and without any fixed opinions to persist in but quite disposed according to habit to hit the house just between wind and water and to win its applause by speaking for the majority or by haranguing inimitably on both sides when the majority was somewhat uncertain in january seventeen sixty seven when lord chatham was absent and the majority was very uncertain mr grenville took occasion in the debate upon the extraordinaries for the army in england and america to move that america like ireland should support its own establishment the opportunity was one which mr townsend could not let pass much to the astonishment of every one and most of all to that of his colleagues in the ministry he supported mr grenville's resolution declaring himself now in favour of the stamp act which he had voted to repeal treating lord chatham's distinction between internal and external taxation as contemptuously as mr grenville had done and pledging himself able if necessary to find a revenue in america nearly adequate to the proposed project the earl of shelburne in great distress of mind at once wrote to lord chatham relating the strange if characteristic conduct of the chancellor of the exchequer and declaring himself entirely ignorant of the intentions of his colleagues it was indeed an anomalous situation if lord chatham's policies were still to be considered those of the ministry mr townsend might be said to be in opposition a circumstance which made many people think lord chatham ill at st james's only lord chatham was not ill at st james's he was most likely very well at st james's being unable to appear there thus leaving the divided ministry amenable to the king's management or helpless before a factious opposition the opportunity of the opposition came when the chancellor of the exchequer in february proposed to continue the land tax at four shillings for one year more after which time he thought it might be reduced to three shillings in view of additional revenues to be obtained from the east india company but opposition saw no reason why in view of the revenue which mr townsend had pledged himself to find in america a shilling might not be taken from the land at once a proposal which mr dowswell moved should be done and which was accordingly voted through the influence of mr grenville and the duke of bedford who had formerly carried the stamp act aided by the rockingham whigs who had formerly repealed it if lord chatham was ill at st james's this was a proper time to resign it was doubtless a proper time to resign in any case but lord chatham did not resign in march he came to london endeavoured to replace mr townsend by lord north which he failed to do and then retired to bath to be seen no more leaving mr townsend more than ever master of the revels mr townsend did not resign either but continued in office quite undisturbed by the fact that a cardinal measure of the ministry had been decisively voted down mr townsend reasoned that if opposition would not support the ministry all difficulties would be straightened out by the ministry supporting the opposition this was the more reasonable since opposition had perhaps been right after all so far as the colonies were concerned late reports from that quarter seemed to indicate that the repeal of the stamp act far from satisfying the americans had only confirmed that umbrageous people in a spirit of licentiousness which was precisely what opposition had predicted as the sure result of any weak concession the new york assembly it now appeared refused to make provision for the troops according to the terms of the quartering act new york merchants were petitioning for a further modification of the trade acts the precious bostonians wrangling refined doctrinaire points with governor bernard were making interminable difficulties about compensating the sufferers from the stamp act riots 
if lord chatham in february seventeen sixty seven could go so far as to say that the colonies had drunk deep of the baneful cup of infatuation mr townsend having voted for the stamp act and for its repeal might well think in may that the time was ripe for a return to rigorous measures on may thirteen in a speech which charmed the house mr townsend opened his plan for settling the colonial question the growing spirit of insubordination which must be patent to all he thought could be most effectively checked by making an example of new york where defiance was at present most open for which purpose it was proposed that the meetings of the assembly of that province be totally suspended until it should have complied with the terms of the mutiny act as one chief source of power in colonial assemblies which contributed greatly to make them insubordinate was the dependence of executive officials upon them for salaries mr townsend now renewed the proposal which he had formerly brought forward in seventeen sixty three to create an independent civil list for the payment of governors and judges from england the revenue for such a civil list would naturally be raised in america mr townsend would not however venture to renew the stamp act which had been so opposed on the ground of its being an internal tax he was free to say that the distinction between internal and external taxes was perfect nonsense but since the logical americans thought otherwise he would concede the point and would accordingly humour them by laying only external duties which he thought might well be on various kinds of glass and paper on red and white lead and upon teas the duties to be collected in colonial ports upon the importation of these commodities from england it was estimated that the duties might altogether make about forty thousand pounds if the collection were properly attended to and in order that the collection might be properly attended to and for the more efficient administration of the american customs in general mr townsend further recommended that a board of customs commissioners be created and established in massachusetts bay with slight opposition all these recommendations were enacted into law and the commissioners of the customs shortly afterward appointed by the king arrived in boston in november seventeen sixty seven end of chapter four part one